Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Topical with Michael Schaefer. I hope you had a lovely week. I hope that you had a lovely Australia Day or Invasion Day, whatever it is that you're calling it. I hope you had a nice day, either celebrating being Australian or commemorating a genocide. Whatever it is you did that day, I hope you had a nice time. I've been in Perth for the last about a week and a half now, and it's my first time in Perth on Australia Day in a while, and I have to say they really celebrate Australia Day here in Perth. I'm so used to being on the East Coast, back home in Melbourne on Australia Day, that I'm just... I'm used to people not celebrating Australia Day. I'm used to people not being patriotic, not being nationalistic. I'm used to people kind of being a little bit sheepish on Australia Day. You know, they they don't want to tell you that they're having a pool party or a barbecue. I mean, they are doing that, but they kind of, on the East Coast, they'll kind of keep it to themselves. Like they will post about how, you know, always was, always will be Aboriginal lands. But then on Australia Day, they'll still have like, you know, a secret pool party and a secret barbecue because we still enjoy having a day off and the weather's great. So on the East Coast, people are a bit, I guess, a bit more quiet about their celebrations. It's a bit, you know, it's a bit of like, it's like going to a speakeasy in, in Melbourne. Like there's a party going on but to get to it, you got to go through like it's it's kind of hidden. You got to go through a door. You got to go down an alleyway. There is a party happening, but it's just it's kind of kept under wraps. That's what happens kind of on on the east coast in Melbourne. People keep that to themselves. But then here in Perth, I t- you wouldn't even know that there was a debate around Australia Day if you were in Australia Day in Perth. It's you walk around on the street on Jan 26 and you just see people wearing Australia, Australian flags on their back. You see the boxing kangaroo on everyone's apparel. apparel. You see green and gold everywhere. It's, it's, they're very nationalistic and patriotic here in Perth. They're all, if, it might be like the last capital city in Australia to be still just celebrating Australia Day and being overt and honest about that. And I'll be honest, I do prefer their honesty here in Perth because in Perth, they're like, nah, fuck them. It's Australia Day. We're going to have a nice day. You know, don't divide us. Go fuck yourselves. And then, and they, and they're proud and they're proud. And you look, usually when white people get proud, that's, you know, bad shit happens, but they're proud and they're having a nice day. And I respect their openness. I respect that they're not trying to say one thing and do something else. Whereas you go to Melbourne, everyone's like, you know, this is Nam. And then they are having a pool party on a day that commemorates the genocide of the people who used to call this place Nam. So I do prefer the honesty of the Patriots and the nationalistic mindset of the people of Perth. I I don't know why Perth people are more patriotic 
than other parts of the country. I suspect it has something to do with the proximity of the city to China. I just think that, you know, geographically, they're kind of on the front lines when it comes to the impending war with China. Like, geographically, they're probably going to take the first hit when the Chinese do decide to take over Australia. Of course, once they've swept through Taiwan and Singapore and Indonesia, they'll, they'll come to Australia and it's a matter of time. And I think the people of Perth are aware of that. They are aware that essentially they are on the front line for this impending war. And war and the threat of war certainly breeds a tremendous amount of nationalistic pride and, and patriotism. That is one thing that war does achieve. We saw it with Ukraine, for example. You know, Russia invades Ukraine. All of a sudden, everyone's like, Slava Ukraini. Zelensky gets a big bump in the polls. A lot of nationalistic, patriotic pride kind of swept through that country when there was that invasion. Same thing happened with Israel recently. Before the uh, Hamas attack on the 7th of October, Israel was a deeply kind of divided country. There was a, a big split in the country because you had the government run by Bibi Netanyahu trying to consolidate more and more power and trying to interfere with the judiciary and the Supreme Court in Israel. A lot of people were concerned about that. In fact, people within the Israeli army were saying, like reservists in the Israeli army were saying, well, we're not going to turn up to our base unless uh, Bibi Netanyahu, you know, surrenders some of his power and tries to stop controlling the judiciary. So it was a very, very divided country. All of a sudden, there's a terror attack, bang, nationalism, patriotism, here we go, I'm Israel Chai. You know, it's, the war and the threat of war really does galvanize a population. Of course, let's not forget 9-11. I mean, the Twin Towers go down, but George Bush's ratings go straight up. So I'm just saying that war, the threat of war, does tend to force people to, uh, you know, unite with their fellow countrymen because there is a sense that we are, we're all under attack. And I think that that might be part of the psyche of the people of Perth because there's basically the front lines of this war with China. They know we're not going to stand a chance. They know that the nuclear submarines that are meant to be ready in like 10 years are not going to do much to stop China. Even if China hasn't invaded, you know, by that point, I, I still feel like these nuclear submarines... Honestly, they might hold back an invading Chinese army for about seven minutes. That's pretty much all you'll get, you know, with those submarines. So Perth knows. They know they're on the front line. And as a result, they celebrate Australia Day. They're proud to be Australian. They're patriotic. Because a part of it is about, you know, protecting and preserving and conserving a tradition that will soon be overridden by uh, 1.4 billion Chinese people. I think that's the mentality that just goes behind it. You know, over in the East Coast, Melbourne, people like always was, always will be. Here in Perth, they're like, uh, well, good chance it will be Chinese land soon. So let's just kind of enjoy Australia Day while we can. To be honest, this could be one of the last ones we have for a while. You know, eventually Perth won't be called Perth. It'll be Xi Jinping City. You know, we won't be throwing lamb on the barbecue we'll be throwing uh, dim sum dim sums in the wok you know i think they're just they're aware of their own mortality in perth and as a result 
they become more patriotic and more galvanized. Because, you know, I, I saw what was happening in Melbourne last week. I saw that uh, the James Cook, the Captain Cook statue in St. Kilda was sawn off uh, in the day before Australia Day. It was cut down. You know, people on the East Coast, they're, they're going after statues. They're going after statues. You do not see that in Perth. And I, I'll point out something that I learned while I've been here in Perth the last week. There is a statue right outside my apartment building on the street. And it commemorates a guy called uh, John Septimus Rowe. And I was interested. I was curious because I was like, well, who is this statue of right outside my apartment? And the statue commemorates... John Septimus Rowe was the first... Like, You go on his Wikipedia page and it's a very, very funny Wikipedia page because it says like, uh, John Septimus Rowe was the first... Uh, uh, general surveyor of WA. He was a very, very famous explorer. He was part of the Legislative Council. And also, he participated in the Pinjara Massacre of 1834. Now, if if there was a statue of a bloke who participated in the Pinjara Massacre of 1834 in Melbourne, you better believe it's it's getting cut down. You better believe that there is going to be a police presence around that statue 24-7 in the weeks leading up and after Australia Day. You better believe that because someone in Melbourne is going to turn up at that statue with a chainsaw, with a bucket of paint, something, and they're going to deface the statue and they're going to vandalize it. But here in Perth, this guy... According to like historical, all historical accounts, participated in a massacre of about thirty or so Indigenous people one morning, and no one minds. No one is upset with the statue. No one is trying to take it down. They just there's just no push to look into that. There's no push to really to really care about that. Now, look, I, I don't support the taking down of statues and the vandalizing of statues. I actually don't think that's the way to solve this problem and deal with our history. Because whatever you think of people like John Septimus Rowe, whatever you think of people like Captain Cook, these were people who had huge impacts on Australian history. Uh, whether you call, whether you think those impacts are positive or negative, they are very, very significant figures in our history and in our culture, how we see ourselves and how we will continue to see ourselves in the future. So I think like taking down the statue and kind of eradicating that history is a bit immature. I think it's a bit immature. I understand the message. The message is, you know, we don't endorse what what James Cook basically precipitated. We don't endorse the the massacre at Pinjara that John Septimus Rowe participated in. I understand that that's the overarching message of taking down these statues. And of, and of course, that makes perfect sense. But I think we can deal with the, that honestly and, and, and more maturely by simply keeping the statue up there and being like, hey, this is James Cook. He's the guy that, you know, discovered Australia for the British. I'm not going to say discovered for other people because 
you know, I feel like there were people here about 40,000 years before it was discovered by James Cook. The word discovered is a very, is a very funny word. It's always used incorrectly. It's like the way that James Cook discovered Australia is like saying that it's like your friend coming up to you and saying, oh, hey, I just discovered this artist called Taylor Swift. And you're like, yeah, no, she's, she's been around for ages. Like it might be new to you, but we're kind of all aware of Taylor Swift. She's not, you know, she's not Terra Nullius. She's, she's a real person that we've been aware of for quite some time. So I know that James Cook discovered Australia for, you know, the British people. And I, and I know that he was a very crucial figure in Australian history, you know, basically led the first fleet to Australia and, and initiated its colonization. And wh- however you feel about that, good or bad, that's just a truth. He had a huge impact on Australia and its development. It was a, a turning point in this country. I think that we can just put that all on the plaque of the statue. I don't think we need to take the statue down because I don't think a statue necessarily means that we're glorifying or endorsing the figure in the statue. I don't think it necessarily has to be that. A statue can literally just be uh, uh, an educational tool, something that uh, reminds us about something in our history. And to be honest, I think a statue... if People do think that statues are glorifying figures from the past. I don't think that's what statues do because if you look at a statue, they're very uh, not glorious because they're, they're always, like, there's always a bird shitting on top of the statue. You know, it's always like kind of rusted and, and, and moldy and, and usually very poorly looked after. It's, I just don't think a piece of bronze covered in bird shit is the glorious tribute that patriots think it is. Personally, I think if James Cook came back and saw his statue covered in bird shit, I think he'd be like, oh, please take this down. Someone, can someone turn up with a hacksaw and cut this thing down from the, from the shins? Because this is quite embarrassing that this, I'm being remembered as the guy with bird shit on my head. So I don't think statues in and of themselves are always, you know, glorious tributes and endorsements of the figures that they represent. So I I think the way to do it is to just keep the James Cook statue and just be like, hey, this was James Cook. You know, he was the guy that led the first fleet to Australia. Um, also, a bit of a cunt and kind of got what was coming to him in Hawaii. I think we can fit all of that onto a plaque. I think, and I think that way we'd all be kind of happy. I think the people who, you know, want to take down the James Cook statue will be happy with that because at least we're honestly representing what James Cook was. And I think the patriots who love James Cook will also be happy with that because, you know, most of them are illiterate and I don't think they'll even be able to understand the words on the plaque. So I think that's the solution. That's how I think we deal with this whole statue debacle. Stop taking them down. Let's just uh, have an honest depiction, an honest description of who these people were in the plaque underneath. The next time, next time I want to talk about is, it's something I haven't wanted to talk about 
for a week or two because I've been waiting for more information to come out. But over in New York, a bunch of Hasidic Jews have been found digging tunnels underground. And I have to say, it's a bad look. It's a bad look. Last week on this podcast, I discussed how there were some Jewish lobbyists who worked behind the scenes to get a journalist, Antoinette Latouf, removed from her ABC job on the radio because they thought that she was biased against Israel. And unfortunately, they did not operate behind the scenes enough because that story was leaked to the media and then it became a, a national story about how Jewish lobby groups are controlling the media in Australia, which is a bad look. It's a bad look. And, and the point that I was making in discussing that was how sometimes Jews are kind of our own worst enemy. Sometimes we act in a way that makes anti-Semites be like, aha, I bloody knew it. The Jews control the media. And not only that, they're living in tunnels underground. What are the Jews doing down there in those tunnels? I mean, if you are a Hasidic Jew, any Jew really, and you have a tunnel, please don't get caught inside of the tunnel because anti-Semites do not need any more ammunition than what they already have to perpetuate their conspiracy theories. Because you know when that story broke, there were Discord channels around the world. There were Telegram channels around the world where everyone was just like, I told you so. Where all these fucking neo-Nazis were like, I told you so. I knew that the Jews were in the tunnels. I don't, who knows what they're doing down there? Is that Are they controlling the weather from underneath the tunnels? What's happening? Is that where they keep the, the controller for the space laser? It's down underneath. It's underground, under, under Brooklyn. You know that's what was popping off in these Discord channels, these Telegram channels, these fucking anti-Semites were like, we were right all along. We've got to be better than that. Now, I've been waiting to find out why these Jews uh, built these tunnels in the first place before I commented on it. And it's been you know, over a week now and I still am not seeing anyone reporting why these tunnels were built. I, I, no, no Jewish leader has come out and said, yeah, this is why, why we built the tunnels. I'm pretty sure that they built the tunnels underneath. The tunnels were like between, were underneath the synagogue and connected to a nearby building. And it would make the most sense to me, knowing my people, knowing the Jews and knowing the religious Jews quite well, I think that the tunnel was probably built during like COVID lockdowns as a way of circumventing the restrictions against congregating to pray. So I'm guessing that during the lockdown, these Hasidic Jews who just like, they have to pray. Like they just, that's, they love praying. That's one of their big things. They love to grow out their fringes, their payers, and they love to pray. And they like to wear big hats. This is their culture. 
And when the government of New York said, you can't congregate to pray anymore, they said, okay, I'm going to call up my close personal friend, Moisha, who happens to be an excavator, and we'll see about that. And so I suspect they just built these tunnels underground between this neighboring building under the synagogue so that they could sneak into the synagogue and pray during the lockdowns. That's what I assume these tunnels were for. On the plus side, one thing I think that we can take out of this tunnel uh, revelation is that it's nice to know that there is something uniting the Jews and Hamas in this very, very precarious time. It is nice to know that both Hamas and the Jews love a tunnel. And I think at times like these, we have to focus on the things that unite us now more than ever, as opposed to the things that divide us. That's what I believe. So right now, you know, Hamas and the Jewish people, there's a lot of friction. There's a lot of tension. There's a lot of division. People say Australia is divided. You should look at what's happening in the Middle East right now. So there's a lot of division. There's a lot of tension. I do think that perhaps the only way we get to a two-state solution is if the Jews and Hamas unite together and say, hey, we're actually not that different. We're actually not that different. You know, you love a tunnel. We love a tunnel. You hate bacon. We hate bacon. There's so much... There is there is common ground, is what I'm trying to say. I, I hope that there is a future for a two-state solution between Israel and Palestine. And I hope that the two states are eventually interconnected via a, an elaborate and technologically advanced system of tunnels. I mean, I, if we just combined... If the Jews and Hamas could get along, they could create a a beautiful tunnel network that would just, it would unite them together. It would give them a project to work on together. You know, and it means that they would, you know, be, they could live above ground. They could live below ground. I just think that it would be nice if, if that was part of the negotiations if they're like, hey guys, if we unite our skills together, nothing can stop us. We can live underground in unison for as long as we want. Big story that's just been breaking over the last few hours, really, is Australia's Bud Light moment. Australia is having its its Bud Light moment. It's very, it's very exciting for Australia because we are like. You look at how the culture wars progress in the US and Australia is always a few months to like a year behind what's happening in America. So when we look at America, we're basically looking into our own future. You know, when, because Australians, like we don't really have a lot of our own ideas. We kind of just copy what's happening in the US. Like for example, you know, when the US was plagued by conspiracies of election fraud and 
and all that stuff following the 2020 election, Australian, you know, conservatives, Australian, you know, nutcases essentially like, jumped on that bandwagon like two years later when we had an election. So like two years after the American election, Australians, we had our big election and we're like, this is obviously it's rigged. You know, Daniel Andrews has won the Victorian uh, state election in a landslide victory and everyone who I speak to in my Reddit channel uh, reckons that he's he's a bad guy. So everyone in my bubble voted against him. So I can only presume that the election is rigged because my online group of uh, QAnon conspiracy theorists is a perfect representation of the general pub- public of Australia. So when, you know, there was that, that conspiracy theory took hold in America and then, a, you know, a year or two later it was taken hold in Australia. It's, we just copy whatever happens in America. Like I'm actually waiting for Australia to have its own Jan 6 moment because, you know, in the US that happened, what, three years ago now? And I just think Australians will eventually... I think the one thing stopping Australians from having our own Jan 6 moment and marching on parliament and trying to initiate a revolution is... Firstly, they would have to go to Canberra, which is a very boring place to go. There's not a lot to, to do there. It's a very, very... It's a, it's a very lame place to start a revolution. You know, it, it's, it's crazy how the seat of political power in Australia is essentially this kind of weird country town halfway between Sydney and Melbourne that's most famous for having a, a, the Telstra, a, a, a Telstra Tower and a, a science museum called Questacon that many Australian children visit in grade six like that's the seat of power in australia it's not there's not much there's not much gravitas to marching on canberra whereas of course in america washington dc the history in that place it that's the seat of that's where all the lobbyists are that's where all the politicians are that's where all the power is that's where the swamp is that's where the corruption is you know it's it's a there's the Lincoln Memorial. There's there's so much gravitas that you, you smell it in the air when you're walking through through along these monuments and along these huge statues that you know pay tribute to Abraham Lincoln. You know you I mean again Abraham Lincoln maybe they could change his plaque as well and be like look did free the slaves but also, you know, retired early or something like that. So I'm just thinking that Australia hasn't had its Jan 6 moment yet because it would require people to go to Canberra and it's kind of a lame place to start a revolution. Either that or they have tried going to Canberra, but they got too confused by the roundabouts and ended up just going around in circles for so long that they lost their bearings and gave up. That's also another possibility. But the reason I, I'm bringing this up is because Australia, I think, is once again, you know, copying what happened in America a year or two ago. We're just, we follow in the culture wars that America has set for us. 
you know, and it, it's, I do find it kind of humiliating and embarrassing as an Australian that we can't really come up with our own culture wars. Even the statues, by the way, the whole, you know, taking down the James Cook statue, that's an American idea. During the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, 2020, they were taking down statues of, you know, the people who led the Confederacy in their civil war. That's their idea, is taking down the statues. And then Australians saw that and were like, oh, that's something we can do, I guess. That's a great way for us to keep ourselves entertained. You know, we don't even come up with our own with our own political movements, our own culture wars. We don't have our own ideas. It's kind of it's kind of embarrassing that we always have to copy whatever Americans are doing and just import their culture wars into our own country. And we've done it again. We've done it again. That's a long preamble to set up the context for this this story. So Rip Curl, which if you don't know, is an Australian like surfing brand. They have uh, come under fire recently. They're, they're facing a, a, a boycott movement because they recently launched an advertising campaign featuring a trans woman surfing you know, and uh, being their ambassador and wearing Rip Curl clothing, a Rip Curl surfboard. And, you know, as you can imagine, uh, this has upset uh, some people out there on the internet. And this is Australia's Bud Light moment because a couple of years ago, you might remember that Bud Light, the American beer company, they released an advertisement. It was just like a, it was just like a paid, a paid advertisement on Instagram collaborating with Dylan Mulvaney, who's a trans woman, and she was she just filmed herself like drinking a Bud Light can. I think it specifically had her name on it, and it was basically Bud Light's way of you know marketing itself towards the LGBTQ community to try and make a bit of money. As a result of that, all these you know people in America decided to boycott Bud Light and they, you know, purchased lots and lots and lots of Bud Light so they can film themselves rolling it over in a steamroller, uh, shooting it with an AR-15. Now, obviously, the message of those videos was, hey, um, we don't support Bud Light's endorsement of, you know, the LGBTQ community and we don't like Bud Light weighing into these culture wars. But... Also, I imagine that Bud Light's sales would have skyrocketed, at least in the short term, because all these uh, angry conservatives were purchasing lots and lots of Bud Lights in order to film their social media videos and make their statements. So I imagine initially the Bud Light executives would have been like, we're fucking, we've bloody done it. Not only have we endeared ourselves to the LGBTQ community, the, the left side of politics, we have also pissed off the right side of politics so much that they are now going out in and, and purchasing Bud Light in droves. Yes, yes, they're setting it on fire. And yes, that's not a great look. Yes, they're putting fireworks on top of our product and, and exploding them. And yes, some of them are suffering third-degree burns from not understanding how pyrotechnics work. Yes, there are there's a there's a there is a skyrocket in 
in third degree burns in America right now and the ERs are being overwhelmed by patriots expressing themselves on social media. But also our sales have skyrocketed. So I think initially they would have been they would have been thrilled, thrilled by how the campaign went. Now, soon after that happened, they realized that there were there might have been a bit of a slump in sales and I don't think they liked the the bad PR that was coming out of out of this collaboration with Dylan Mulvaney. So they then released another video which didn't explicitly apologize for endorsing the LGBTQ community, but was certainly pandering to like the right wing conservative folk. So they released like a very American patriotic video of like a cowboy riding a horse and you know the freedom tower in new york and it was just like this very huge there was this really kind of dramatic american voice over the top like we hear a bud light we we bleed red white and blue and we're and we want to kill the terrorists just as much as you do so drink bud light so they kind of pivoted like their way of apology and being like hey sorry about that uh, just so you know we hate immigrants and foreigners as well so you should drink our product so that's what i went with bud light and now rip curl is basically experiencing the same thing because there's now a big uh online a campaign for people to boycott rip curl and i'm seeing videos on twitter of people they're the funniest videos they're so funny of people like pulling out their rip curl t-shirts and from their closets and carrying them out into the backyard and throwing them into the bin or throwing them on fire and being like, fuck you, Rip Curl, you know, stay out of politics. And I find that very funny. I find that very funny because there's kind of nothing more embarrassing than admitting that you still wear Rip Curl. That's a humiliating thing to admit on social media. Rip Curl is a brand for 13-year-old boys who are going on summer holiday to Malulabar with their parents for a week and are hoping, hoping that a beach blonde girl will think that they're a surfer and want to strike up a chat with them. Look, that might just be me speaking from my own experience, but Rip Curl is is not for adults. Rip Curl is a brand for 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 teenage boys. If if you are wearing Rip Curl as an adult, you should have thrown it out years ago. It's a humiliating thing to put out on the internet, being like, "I'll never wear my Rip Curl board shorts." ever again it's like why are you wearing board shorts that go below your knees it's it's 2024 you're not went to you're an adult you're an adult stop wearing a children's clothing brand you're meant to wear short no one wears board shorts no one no self-respecting adults is wearing board shorts they're just wearing we're just wearing sport shorts some of us wear Speedos. Some men wear Speedos, but I think that's just the Italians who still do that and the narcissists. But otherwise, we're all just wearing 
regular shorts. If you're wearing rip curl board shorts and you're a 45-year-old man who's angry that there's a transgender woman surfing, you have to really you really have to think about the choices you've made in your life. You know, that could be the reason why you only get to see your kids every second weekend. If you, it's because you're still the type of person who's who's wearing a rip curl. So I guess I support the boycott in that respect. I support grown adults not wearing rip curl because you are basically committing cultural appropriation against teenage boys in the early 2000s because that's what rip curl is for. But it is just frustrating that Australia is just once again copying America. They saw what happened with Bud Light and they've gone, okay, well, if we just if we burn our rip curl clothing, it will send a message. And it seems like it has been somewhat successful because within hours of Rip Curl posting on its social media accounts that this that they had uh, Sarah J. Lowison, who was there, who's a trans woman, who was like their ambassador. As soon as they posted about her being an ambassador, they they took down the post. They took down the post. So clearly Rip Curl has decided, okay, we need, we need these uh, divorced men in their 40s and 50s to continue to buy our product because it seems like they are a big demographic for us. So they've taken down the post and I can only presume that they're going to try and do what Bud Light did to salvage their reputation. So, you know, Bud Light, after the Dylan Mulvaney debacle, they posted this very American patriotic ad. I can only presume that Rip Curl is now going to do the same thing. The pendulum is now going to swing all the way across from the left to the right. And so I can only presume that Rip Curl is going to announce a new partnership with the most Australian person they can think of. It'll probably be like Bob Catter. I presume that Bob Catter will be the next ambassador for for Rip Curl. I can only presume that that's the way they're going to win back the hearts and minds of the angry, patriotic conservatives who are sick of having the bloody rainbow force down my bloody throat every time I turn on the TV. I got nothing against them. That, that's, that'll be the ad. That'll be the ad. It'll be Bob Catter on a surfboard and he'll be like, look, I got nothing against the gays and the trans. I don't got nothing against them, but I ain't spending any time in it because every three months a Queenslander is ripped apart by a crocodile. And that's why I am wearing Rip Curl because they care about protecting Australians from crocodiles. It's a this is crocodile proof. It's a crocodile proof T-shirt. It's a crocodile proof uh, wetsuit. The board. Uh, you can actually kill a crocodile on this board. I've seen it myself, but I'm not spending any more time on this. This, and then it'll just be like Rip Curl. That'll be, that'll be the ad. And then in the end, it will say, uh, Rip Curl, 
not just for teenage boys. I think that's how they're going to have to pivot. And like over the, and in the background, they'll have like this giant anthem playing, you know, or they'll have horses by Daryl Braithwaite playing. Just some oh, like it'll be ACDC in the background. That'll be it. It'll be you know, Back in Black will be playing over the top. Bob Catter will be shirtless, still wearing the hat. Obviously, the hat will have Rip Curl on it. You know, they'll fe- they'll film him just. On his surfboard, they'll probably have to CGI it because I don't think he's much of a surfer. He'll be holding a shotgun in one hand, shooting into the water, shooting at crocodiles in the water. That'll be that'll be the ad. They won't specifically address the controversy about having a trans ambassador. They won't address it, but that will kind of be the subtext of the ad. The subtext of the ad will be, hey... If you're a bloody cis man and you love your mates and you love footy and you love a beer and you love uh, you love punching your wife when your team loses, Rip Curl is the brand for you. Like that's kind of the pivot that they're going to make, I think. So I'm excited to see how that turns out. Maybe next week I'll have more to add to the to this story. Last thing I want to talk about this week, I might bring a, I might introduce a new segment into this podcast if if we can find the right person every week. I'd like to have a weekly hero on this podcast, just someone who I who I respect, who has done something newsworthy and important. I'm trying to have a weekly hero segment on this podcast, and and this is the first. This is the first weekly hero segment of this podcast. I hope you're excited for it. It's a new segment. I'm celebrating this week. I'm celebrating a man in China called Uncle Chen. And Uncle Chen has been in the news the last week or so because he, to me, is, I think, the greatest athlete of our time. I think. Because Uncle Chen is famous for running marathons in China, and also chain smoking all the way through the marathon. There's great footage on the internet. Feel free to go look at it right now to to add a bit of context to what I'm discussing so you can see it yourself. But there's footage of him running a, I think it was the Xiamen, the Xiamen a marathon recently, and he's just puffing away all the way through the 26 miles. And... I think it's perhaps the most impressive sporting achievement, certainly that I've ever witnessed in my era. Look, I've seen, you know, Djokovic win 24 Grand Slams. I've seen Kobe Bryant score 80 points. I've seen Mick Fanning uh, punch a shark. I've seen these incredible... I've seen Usain Bolt run the 100 metres in nine seconds. I've seen Kathy Freeman win gold for Australia. I've seen Stephen Bradbury win gold for Australia in speed skating because he was the only one that didn't fall over. I've seen these incredible moments in sports, but I've never seen a man run a marathon uh, with emphysema. I think that's 
That's incredible. And and what's to me very upsetting, this makes him not just my hero of the week, but also my martyr of the week. Because he ran the marathon, there were like 1,500 people running in this marathon. And Uncle Chen came 574th, which is a pretty good effort when he's smoking all the way through. I personally think that marathons should kind of be handicapped the same way that when you play golf, you're kind of going with a handicap. Like, you know, coming 574th without smoking, without going through a pack of Marlboros, that's a good effort. That's impressive. But coming 574th whilst also like on 10% lung capacity, that should mean that you're essentially a top 10 finish, shouldn't it? That you should... You're, you should be bumped up the rankings, in my opinion. However, the Chinese Marathon Authority has come out and disqualified this man, Uncle Chen, from the race because he was smoking during the race. Because there is, bizarrely, a, a rule specifically in the marathon running rule book that actually specifically says you're not allowed to smoke during the race, presumably because... You look too cool whilst doing it and it's going to set back the anti-smoking campaigns that we've been seeing over the last few years that have led to a huge drop in smoking amongst most populations around the world. Presumably, because when you see a man completing a marathon chain smoking, you think, well, maybe maybe Big Tobacco was right. Maybe smoking is healthy for you maybe those doctors in the 50s were correct and maybe all those ads showing that cigarette skills that cigarette kills cigarettes kill maybe all those ads that show cigarettes kill they show people dying from cigarette smoking maybe those are all paid actors because look at uncle chen you know he's doing great so there is a rule that allows him to disqualify this man and personally i think it's i think it's it's a travesty of justice. It really is. It's it could be the greatest sporting scandal of our time. It really I think it it's upsetting that a man who is in, you know, peak physical condition and I I say that with no sarcasm. Like if you can run a marathon whilst being a chain smoker, you are in peak physical condition. That man should be studied. That man should be celebrated. There should be a statue to Uncle Chen in China. There should be a statue to Uncle Chen in every city in China. And let's be honest, every city in Australia too. And let's be honest, you know, we're not far off that given the impending war that the people of Perth are not going to be able to to win. There should be a statue of Uncle Chen all around China and the plaque should say, this guy's a fucking hero. Long live the CCP. And long li- and and he should be the brand ambassador for Marlboro cigarettes. What I'm saying is, if we're going to take down the statues of James Cook, can we replace them with statues of Uncle Chen smoking? Because that's a figure who I think can unite the world. That's my weekly hero of the week. Hope you enjoyed this week's episodes. If you had a nice time listening to this, I would actually appreciate this if you could do me a favor. Could you give this a five-star review on Spotify or Apple, wherever you're listening? 
only because it does help other people discover the podcast. Thank you to the people who gave it a five-star review recently. The, re- the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning this in the podcast now is because I've been talking about Israel and Palestine over the last few weeks. And every time I talk about Israel and Palestine, I seem to upset one half of the, deb- the debate so much that they will um, give me a bad review on Spotify and Apple. And as a result, it just makes it harder for other people to discover the podcast. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of my previous episodes, all I ask is that you just give it a nice review so that we uh, get some other people listening to the podcast and hopefully they get to enjoy these awful, awful thoughts that I have to live with uh, every moment of my life. I've got shows coming up in Perth from the 13th to the 18th of February and Fremantle from the 16th to the 18th of February. That's all part of the Fringe World website. You can get your tickets from the, for that at fringeworld.com.au or you can head to my website, michaelshafer.com. I'm also at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival bringing my new show there for the month, 28th of March through to the 21st of April. I'm, I'm actually doing the new show at the moment, doing some trial spots of the new show in Perth at the moment and it's uh, upsetting a lot of Perth people and I think that's always a good sign. So if you uh, enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy how I perceive the world, I think you should come along to one of my solo shows. I think you'll have a nice time. Thank you for listening. You've been an absolute joy to speak to this week. You have a great week and I'll see you next week. Good night.